Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And today we are doing a movie that I'm so excited for. I've had it on the list for a while, mainly because... It has one of my all-time favorite 1950s drive-in movie posters. And I'm kind of a connoisseur of 1950s uh, (laughs) drive-in horror movie posters. In fact, I'm sort of surrounded by them right now. I've got uh, the the It Conquered the World poster, the Attack of the Crab Monsters poster. But this movie, I'd say the poster is the best of them all. It is a 1958 film called The Brain Eaters. Yes, and if if you haven't seen the poster for this, look it up. You know, go to any go to the IMDb page for it. Look it up on Wikipedia. Just do an image search. You'll see this fabulous poster. You've probably seen it before, and it is just gorgeous. It's this gigantic face, like a lady's head, her eyes wide open in a kind of desperate anguish, but instead of regular eyes, they're just pure yellow, these yellow voids. And then she's got fangs, like a vampire, and like mm-hmm. very red lips, like vampires are often depicted in, in color films of the time. Uh, but then also her skull is cracked open to reveal the brain underneath, and the brain is like exploding. There are shafts of, of light or power or something shooting out of the brain. And then it has the title in yellow, The Brain Eaters. It shows people scattering uh, below the face as if they're they're fleeing in terror from this yellow-eyed vampire lady. And it says, crawling, slimy things, terror bent on destroying the world. I don't know what terror bent means. The Brain Eaters. (laughs) Maybe they they couldn't put hell on the poster. So they're like, "Uh, I still like the bent part. Can we just go go with terror bent? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, So, Rob... Can you describe what movie you would think you were about to see based on the title of this movie and the poster alone? Okay, so yeah, having having looked at this poster over the years and uh, and never having having seen the film until this week, uh, I would say that I look at this poster and I think it's about a lady who gets uh, like an Earth woman who gets um, you know altered by some sort of cosmic ray. It it gives her some sort of psychic powers so that there's like you know mind blast. Uh, firing out of her brain. Maybe her brain is exposed, maybe not. But then she has this vampire thirst for for human brains or like, or maybe like, uh, you know, just like neural juices or something. Um, spinal fluid, yeah. Yeah, so she's just, uh, you know, she, she, can't, she can't stop this hunger. She's just, uh, uh, and, and as we see in the bottom part of the, 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 uh, the poster here, uh, law enforcement and uh, the general public, they're having to, to swoop in uh, to try and stop her. Unfortunately, every single bit of that is entirely misleading. The lady on the poster does not appear in the film, and the movie The Brain Eaters has no brain eating in it. Right. No brain. So if you have, if you look at this poster and you're like, I don't know about this, I don't want to watch brains get eaten, don't worry. There's, there are no brains in this picture. There are no really, I don't think they're exposed brains either. No. I mean, the closest thing is this movie does feature alien parasites that like jack into your spine. And so. I don't know. I guess the spine is connected to the brain. That's that's as close as you can get. Yeah, it's kind of like if uh, if they'd called the movie The Social Network The Brain Eaters, it would <laughs> be just as accurate. Like, yes, okay, technically it's about eating brains, but but not in a uh, not literally. 
Yeah, not in the physical way that we were imagining. Right. Um, so do you want to know why it was called the Brain Eaters, despite the fact that there's no brain eating? Oh, let, let, let's have it. I'm, I'm guessing it has something to do with the studio. Oh, yeah. Well, I don't know. I, th- this is actually a rather independent production, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, but it has something to do with an uncredited producer. So I found the answer to this question in an interview with the named producer of this film and leading actor, Edwin Nelson, who's come up on this show before. Uh, definitely, we, we talked about him because he was one of the people who operated the crab suits yes. in Attack of the Crab <laughs> Monsters. That's right. He He worked with Roger Corman quite a bit. Yes. And so it turns out that this movie also, despite the fact that Corman is not credited on it, it was created under the uncredited auspices of the schlock father himself, Roger Corman. And so I was reading about a little of the backstory of this movie in an interview with with the producer and lead actor Ed Nelson in a book by the horror historian Tom Weaver. And uh, let me look up the title of that book real quick, just in case you want to look it up yourself. It's called Double Feature Creature Attack, a monster merger of two more volumes of classic interviews uh, published in 2003. And in this interview, Ed Nelson explains in his own words, he says, The Brain Eaters was originally not called The Brain Eaters. Roger, meaning Roger Corman, loved our original title so much that he took the title off of it. And Bruno, (laughs) that's Bruno uh, Vesota, the director, and I had to make up The Brain Eaters. The original title of The Brain Eaters was Attack of the Blood Leeches. That was the title Roger loved. So he took the title to make another picture, which ended up being Attack of the Giant Leeches. He got somebody to hack out a script for him. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's that's putting you in the right zone of, of this era of filmmaking. Very title first, very poster first. We can get a script out this weekend and we'll just make it. Uh, Attack of the Giant Leeches, by the way, uh, that one was uh, riffed on Mystery Science Theater 3000 back in the day. Uh, kind of a kind of terrible garbage bag, giant leech effects, uh-huh. uh, but a very grimy film. And there was always something about it that kind of creeped me out. Like it felt huh. there's something legitimately creepy about that film. I can't remember. Is that the one that has dogs with like carpet on them? Or is that the Killer Shrews? That's the Killer Shrews. Uh, okay. That's the one. Killer Shrews is where then they build like a weird suit of armor to try and survive the truth. This one has all these like really grimy, mucky scenes where the giant leeches have like kidnapped people and taken them back to their, their, their lair. That's like underwater underground. And, uh, I don't know. There's something legitimately creepy about those sequences, even though it's, uh, you know, the, the costumes are not very realistic as if, mm. as if realism can even really be applied to something like a giant leech. Well, anyway, while the movie itself on its own terms is a lot of fun and I'm really excited to talk about it, I do also just want to have like a moment of silence for the uh, for the the movie that is implied but never realized by the poster and title. There's still time, though. They could they could basically come back, take this poster. The people are always looking for things to adapt into into films like come back, get this one. Just take the title. Take that cover image. You can leave the rest of the film, but just yeah. take those two things and run with it. It wouldn't be the first time someone took a um, Roger Corman related picture and just took, uh, you know, either the title or the poster. Uh, I believe this was the case with the Fast and the Furious. Correct? Oh, maybe that that actually sounds right, but I don't know much about that. I do think that there is a there was an earlier film called that. It was long before Vin Diesel walked to this earth. Yes, The Fast and the Furious, 1954. 
uh, let's see, based on a story by Roger Corman, produced by Roger Corman. Okay, well then, using that principle, I would say it'd be great to apply to the Brain Eaters because once again, this poster is a is an awesome gobsmacking thing of beauty. Yes. Uh, so, um, I, I was looking into this because I'm like, all right, well, what's the what's the story on this? Uh, well, the person responsible for this poster is Albert Callis. That's K A L L I S. Um, not only did he do this poster, but he's responsible for a lot of classic movie poster goodness from this period. Um, if you want to see some of these, there's an, there's an excellent blog that I've been uh, visiting for a while titled uh, Monster Brains and, at monsterbrains.blogspot.com. If you look up, uh, go there and look for Callis, K-A-L-L-I-S, you'll find at least one gallery from 2011 of these various posters that he put together. Nice, high quality, so you can admire them. But uh, they include such uh, films as I Was a Teenage Frankenstein, Attack of the Crab Monsters, Invasion of the Saucer Men, Not of This Earth, which we covered on here before, mm-hmm. on Weird House. Uh, con- uh, let's see, uh, It Conquered the World, How to Make a Monster. That yeah, that's a good one. The Astounding She-Monster, that's a really eye-catching one. And, and so many more. Um, now, this is, uh, incidentally, this is also the same Albert Callis of the Albert and Trudy Callis Foundation, which is responsible for various documentaries. So he was only really in the poster game for, um, you know, a certain number of years and then moved on to other things. Well, he's one of the best. I love that style. I wish that style of movie poster would come back. The, you know, the great uh, hand-painted drive-in movie style poster that often has nothing to do with the movie. Yeah, absolutely. These are gorgeous. Though I will say that some of his other posters uh, do feature creatures or ver- variations of the creatures that are actually in the film. So they're not all as oh yeah, as, yeah. Uh, deceptive as this. And certainly any deception, uh, I'm not going to place the blame on the poster artist. Uh, but anyway, they're, they're beautiful posters. No, the, the other two Corman posters of his I have, are they're on target. Like Attack mm-hmm. of the Crab Monsters, it's got that crab. And <laughs> It Conquered the World, it has the killer artichoke. It's right there. Right. But anyway, to bring everything back to the brain eaters, uh, while this movie may not in fact have brain eating, it it has nearly everything you could want of, of a drive-in deluxe. Apparently, this one uh, was a double feature that was often paired with Earth versus the Spider, the Burt I. Gordon mm-hmm. movie, Mr. Big. And so, of course, like Attack of the Crab Monsters and, and uh, other, other great movies of this caliber, it is mercifully short this is a 61 minute long movie that's another thing i want people to bring back give me hour-long movies there is no reason to try to pad everything out to 90 minutes if it doesn't need to be that long a 60 minute movie is fine absolutely i think that's why i'm I'm so drawn to some of these uh, outer limits episodes because they get in they get what needs to be done in uh, in less than an hour and uh, and this you know we're just talking a little over an hour you watch this film twice and you spent, yes. ended up spending less time watching it than some of the pictures uh, that are out there, especially some of the modern films uh, uh, one might view. Totally. And they pack so much in. So this movie has an anomalous cone. Mm-hmm. It has an elfin-looking murder boy who runs around transporting mysterious globes. It has Leonard Nimoy sitting in a garage full of fog, dressed as a wizard. <laughs> it has no-nonsense heroics from a, from a senator named Walter K. Powers, whose name is uttered at least 30 times <laughs> in this movie. Uh, it has the fact that every single character is armed with a loaded revolver, 
at all times and is constantly shooting at things. Mm -hmm. And the monsters in it are tinglers, just like in The Tingler. And I love watching these tinglers creep around. They got little pipe cleaner antennae. I want to know what is the secret of the cone. Uh, I, I, I can't deny it. I love the brain eaters. Now, to be fair to the tingler, um, these are kind of like your your bargain basement yes. tinglers. <laughs> these are not on the level of the tingler as far as creature effects go. These, in fact, were made with little, uh, little wind-up toys. That's another thing that Ed Nelson talks about in that interview. In fact, to read from it directly, Nelson says, quote, We made the creatures out of a little toy wind-up beetle that was around in toy stores at the time and quite plentiful. They had antennae, and if they bumped into a piece of furniture, they would turn and go the other way. We put uh, crepe hair on them. I'm not sure what crepe hair is. Crepe like the food or crepe, however you say that. We put crepe mm. hair on them and pipe cleaners for their antennae. And there you go. That's that's your movie monster. <laughs> Yeah, um, well, when I, I looked this movie up in uh, in Michael Weldon's uh, uh, books, uh, one thing he said was, "Yeah, the effects are not good, but the, but it's a fun sci fi film nonetheless." And uh, yeah, I, th- I think I have to agree. Like sometimes we say, "Oh, well, you know this this film did a really good job with the effects for the time or for the budget." I mean, I don't, I'm not saying I was insulted by the effects in, in this film. <laughs> it's not that level, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna spend a lot of time defending them or, or or finding nice things to say about them uh, I, I guess they get the job done well i mean this movie was i'd say on the border of micro budget i'm not yeah. sure exactly what the cutoff is there but i think it, this was in 1958 and it was made for just a few tens of thousands of dollars yeah um so yeah they, they were not pumping money into the effects budget i think they were pumping money into like catering for the crew yeah, they managed to not insult the audience with them. So that's a success given the size of this picture. You ready for the elevator pitch? Let's have it. When a mysterious cone appears in the woods outside Riverdale, Illinois, it's up to a ragtag team of scientists, local bureaucrats, and senators to shoot everything suspicious until they solve the secret of the cone. Yeah, these are some action-packed senators. Like, they just, yeah. just show up on the scene uh, and it just just really it, it's almost like they ran on uh, UFOs and strange cones as one yeah. of their, uh, uh, you know, one of one of their, their major campaign points. I can. Well, so you say that it's action packed senators, but the senator in this movie literally says, I want action like seven <laughs> times. And I'm imagining that's his campaign slogan. Can you see the posters? They've got Walter K. Powers wearing that weird double-layered coat, and it just says, Mm -hmm. I want action. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, and also to complete the elevator pitch, there there are these furry little alien leeches that that are going to turn our nation's precious telegraph operators into mindless space thralls. That are, again, apparently made from toys. <laughs> in yeah. the same way that the uh, the Martians in Santa Claus uh, versus the Martians are using whammo air guns. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear some trailer audio. Ejected from unexplored secret stratus, this giant harder than steel piston disgorges strange creatures, inundating our world, twisting the emotions of women, distorting our men. These things take over a man's mind. He becomes a a robot. A machine taking orders? Join the hunt for the hiding place of terror. Find the breeding place of these globs of destruction. It's an adventure that'll burst your blood vessels with suspense. See the brain eaters. 
All right. Sounds sounds good. Sounds like drive-in material. All right. So we've already said that Roger Corman was an unofficial producer on this. Uh, it was at least a, basically, you know, a, a Corman mafia type production, but uh, his name does not appear on the film. The lead, uh, the lead producer credit goes to Ed Nelson that we can talk about in a minute. But uh, let's see, the actual director was somebody named Bruno Visota. Yes, born uh, 1922, so like 100 years ago, uh, and died in 1976. Uh, mostly an actor, active in the 50s, 60s, and early 70s. Uh, he apparently showed up as a bartender on Bonanza a lot, the, uh, the mm. old TV western. He directed a handful of films, including such titles as Female Jungle from 1955, Invasion of the Star Creatures from 1962, and he also acted in Roger Corman's, uh, or Roger Corman produced, Attack of the Giant Leeches from 1959. Oh, that was the movie that stole the original title yes. of this movie. Yeah. So he, was, he got to be there for it just as, you know, uh, an actor. All right. Now, the screenplay credit goes to Gordon Urquhart, who lived 1923 through 1957. He acted in Female Jungle, uh, but this is his only screenplay credit. Oh, wow. That's short. So did he die the year before this movie was released? Looks like it. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah, he was only 33. All right. Coming back to our producer, or one of our producers, and of course, our, our leading man. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Ed Nelson. Here playing Dr. Paul Kettering. Edwin, you know, he's he's handsome. He says his lines with with vigor and confidence. Uh, maybe not a whole lot of nuance, but 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 I like him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's one of these sometimes the lead in a picture like this, you're like, who is this black hole of charisma that you, uh, <laughs> yeah. that you like um, uh, cattle prodded in front of the uh, the cameras? But no, Ed Nelson's got um, he's got this kind of hammy Shatner esque um, charisma. Yeah, uh, that works in a picture of this caliber. Yes, he is hammy in a way that I like. This movie is not big on character nuance. There, there mm -hmm. are actually a couple of scenes that are more subtle than the rest of the movie, but, uh, but, but in general, they're they're not Paul Kettering. They're not yeah. that character. Ed, Ed Nelson's just there to be the the dashing scientist hero, to be the calm voice of reason and 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 the face of bravery. Yeah, you you save that character development nonsense for the seventy minute pictures. Yeah, <laughs> we don't have time for this. We're trying to get in and out uh, in an hour. But now, are, are the other main performance we've seen of Ed Nelson's that, that we've talked about before? You actually don't get to see his face at all. Uh, he, it's when he's operating the the crab suit in Attack of the Crab Monsters. And I, I saw you had a note where you thought there was a question about whether it was him operating the crab suit. I think maybe you're remembering our question of whether, in addition to Ed Nelson, Jack Nicholson yeah, also sometimes operated those crabs. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The Nicholson part is in question. Um, there, there's still still time for uh, for Nicholson to come forward. So and, if you're uh, interviewing Jack out. Nicholson, ask him about this. Get, yeah. get the final word. So uh, Nelson was a New Orleans-born actor um, who ultimately did just about everything in film. He seemed to really get in there in these productions. I mean, case in point, was inside a giant crab costume. Um, and I think he had – didn't he have a human role in that as well? I saw him listed as Lieutenant Quinlan. Oh, that might be right. A number, a number of crew members and stuff uh, for Attack of the Crab Monsters also had short on-screen roles. Like I think uh, Charles B. Griffith, who wrote the script for Attack of the Crab Monsters, was the Navy boy who gets his head chopped off by the crab at the beginning. Oh, yes, yes. 
Well, he did. Uh, so uh, Ed here did a, lo- a lot more acting. You know, eventually had a long TV career, a lot of westerns, but also, which I guess is unavoidable given the time period. Yeah, uh, you see that with a number of these actors. Um, but um, uh, he also pops up on classic series that are fondly remembered today, like The Twilight Zone, the original Outer Limits, uh, Alfred Hitchcock Hour, Gunsmoke. He played the elusive Robert Denby in 1976's uh, Writing with Death which uh, MST3K fans may uh, fondly remember. Mm -hmm. And he played Governor Nielsen in Police Academy 3 from 1986. (laughs) DeBraley Scott from Death Moon was also in that one. Oh, but unfortunately, Ed Nelson was not in Death Moon. We will never get to see him as the work beast. (laughs) <laughs> oh, he could. You can't replace the work beast. Uh, Ed would have had That's to have true. played like like his boss or something at uh-huh. the uh, at the with the advertising agency or whatever wherever he was supposed to work. Okay, so how did Ed Nelson end up being the producer on the Brain Eaters and not just an actor in it? Well, this is addressed <laughs> in the uh, in the interview from that Tom Weaver book. So I'm going to read Ed Nelson's own words. The question is. Uh, what was it about working with Roger Corman that made so many of his coworkers feel that they should be out making movies on their own? Uh, because this is a, you know, the people who worked with Corman at the time would end up going out and doing their own low budget independent movies in the 50s. Um, and Ed Nelson says, I don't know. I suppose they thought that if Roger could do it, anybody could. Obviously, <laughs> that's not true. I never felt that way. I never wanted to do it. I mean, I produced the brain eaters only because I needed the money. I knew I could do it. I could always produce a picture, but I just don't like it. It's not my bag. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's, it's good to hear that, you know? Uh, but so, yeah, apparently Corman came to Ed Nelson and was like, hey, you know, uh, Bruno Vesoda is going to direct this movie about uh, about killer leeches and I need a producer. Do you, do you want to do it? And uh, and Nelson was like, OK. And so a lot of the producer work on this seemed to be like going he was it was in Pomona, California. And so they would like go around to the local hospital and say, Hey, if we make a small donation to the nurses charity, can we shoot inside your hospital? Or Mm -hmm. they would go to the police station and say, Hey, if we make a small donation to, uh, to the police fund, uh, can we like use your guns and stuff? (laughs) So so it looks like that's about how it worked. Well, they, they got enough guns for this picture. Yes, they did. Their guns runneth over. All right, so let's talk about some other humans in this picture. Uh, we have um, an actor by the name of Cornelius Keefe, uh, <laughs> apparently play, uh, appearing here as Jack Hill, playing Senator Walter K. Powers. The powerhouse. Yes. Uh, he was born 1900, uh, died in 1972. This is a guy that was acting during the mid-1920s. Uh, wow. And this turned out to be his final film role. I think basically... He had been active, uh, you, know, you know, many, many years earlier, and had kind of recently come back as Jack Hill. I don't know. I don't know why. I don't because I think Cornelius Keefe is a great is a great name. It sticks with you. Well, he plays Senator Walter K. Powers with tremendous gusto. Yeah, he, uh, he has this kind of frantic Rudy Giuliani skull about to jump out of his face energy. Yes, uh, but also with this just um, intriguing mustache. <laughs> Yeah, so I spent about half the movie just trying to figure out if Senator Walter K. Powers had a mustache or not. He has a mustache that, I don't know if it's because the movie's in black and white, it's there, but it's like invisible half the time. Yeah, 
and or you know maybe he just he felt compelled to grow one and just wasn't very good at it i mean i can i can understand that i can i can sympathize with that uh but it is um it it is it is a, a, a faint ghost of a mustache well, I think it's one of those that doesn't he, – he decided not to let it cover the entire upper lip. It's like a, one of those little kind of sculpted thin ones, but it like follows the oh, – what's the name of this? The little indentation on your upper lip. What's that called? The lip dip. The, it, it follows the little edges of the lip dip, and then it goes along the top of the upper lip just a little bit. But it's it's tiny. Uh, well, uh, I tell you what it could be. It could be that this is a style of mustache that he always wore, and as he grew older, it was just harder for it to be that 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 you know well defined. Because I think I've, I've seen interviews with John John Waters where he says much the same thing. He's like, oh, you know, the pencil thin mustache is my thing, but the older I get, the more work it takes to to make sure that it's visible. I can understand that. All right. Um, we also have uh, Joanna Lee in this. An actor who lived 1931 through 2003 playing Alice Summers. I don't remember which character this is. Oh, Alice Summers. She, well, so I think she works in the mayor's office at the beginning of the movie, but then uh, she becomes uh, uh, Paul Kettering's research assistant. Yes. And they like okay. figure out the leeches together and then they fall in love. And then she is, and then she is zombified by the leeches. And yes. then at the end, she's the one saying, like, come, come with me. We can be happy forever living under alien tyranny. And he's like, no. Well, she's as close to the lady on the poster as we get then. I mean, but she doesn't look like her. True, true. But a lot of people might remember her from a a lesser but more famous picture she was in. Uh, She played the the alien Tana in Plan 9 from Outer Space, Ed Wood's uh, 1957 masterpiece. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Were you hesitating on the word masterpiece? (laughs) And I don't know why you said that's a lesser film. Well... It depends how you're judging it. it depends what your criteria is, but uh, certainly um, a, a film that sticks with you. So she's in that film. She's one of the the two aliens. I mainly remember the, her male counterpart because he's the one, isn't he? That's like you're stupid, alive, stupid, yes. stupid. Yeah, the, they're the two main aliens. Yeah, he's like uh, your stupid Earth minds, stupid, yes. stupid. stupid minds. <laughs> We also have Jodie Fair in this, playing Elaine Cameron, born 1934, um, active during the late 50s and early 60s. She was mostly in a bunch of sort of youth panic movies of that time period, it seems like. Titles Mm. like High School Confidential, Hot Rod Gang, Ghost of Drag Strip Hollow, (laughs) Girls Town, Sex Kittens Go to College, and then ultimately some TV westerns. Mm, Yep. Everything comes back to Westerns. Everybody we look at in these 50s drive-in movies, it seems like, did mostly Westerns. Yeah, and, you know, the same can be said for the next name we want to talk about, Leonard Nimoy. Um, Wait, this, did you mean the same cannot be said or can? Can be said, yes. Like, oh. um, you know, 66 is when Star Trek uh, came out, uh-huh. and uh, Nimoy had been acting for, you know, years and years prior to that, and a lot of it was Westerns. Wow. I, somehow I've never seen any of those. But yes, Leonard Nimoy is in this. It's a small role. He doesn't show up until the end of the movie. And so you can, even going into it, knowing that he's going to be there at some point, you kind of forget about it until he, he appears at the end in a bank of fog dressed as like Gandalf or his god or something, yeah. uh, talking about how we will force mankind to live in utopia. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Nimoy was born in 1931, died in 2015. 
uh, is most yeah mostly famous and remembered for playing Spock and on the original Star Trek and various Star Trek films and Star Trek uh, uh, related things later on. Uh, you know, legendary role, iconic role, will always be remembered for that. But uh, this at this point, I think this was his twentieth uh, film and TV credit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is about like eight years into him actually appearing on screens of one sort or the other. Uh, he'd eventually go on to do Twilight Zone and Outer Limits uh, in '66. Once more, once again, Star Trek starts up. Um, but uh, you know, he wanted to do other non-Star Trek things as well. He was in the 1978 Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I love that movie, and he's great in it. It's still on my list to see. I haven't watched that one yet. Yeah, I think you'll love it, man. Uh, he uh, later had uh, had, had uh, roles in, let's see, Night Gallery, the 90s Outer Limits series, which I don't think I've seen his episode yet. Um, he uh, he was in the 97 TV miniseries David, in which this is like a biblical movie in which he plays uh, Samuel. Uh, this is not the one where George Eastman shows up as Goliath, but it does have <laughs> Franco Nero as Nathan. Uh, so it, it wow. has at least, you know, one Euro actor in there. Wow. So another thing uh, Ed Nelson reveals in that interview from the Tom Weaver book is that he was supposed to pay Leonard Nimoy $45 to be in this movie, (laughs) but he never gave him his money. Uh, Uh, Also, his name is misspelled in the credits, N-E-M-O-Y, for some reason. Wow. So what, $45, you say? Yes, never yeah. gave it to him. I wonder they should have. He should have done. Uh, you know, later on, Nimoy did in search of. He should have done an episode in search <laughs> of the forty five dollars that uh, that Ed owes me. Where is my brain eater's money? <laughs> <laughs> All right, we have one more uh, name to mention here because it's kind of a fun, weird, um, uncredited cameo. I mean, it wasn't a cameo at the time. Uh, it was just this individual's first uh, appearance in anything. But we have uh, Hampton Fancher showing up. Is he playing the kind of elfin-looking guy who keeps like carrying around globes and then attacking people? I don't think he is the main globe holder. Uh, okay. He is the the thinner, handsomer of the uh, the, the, the troubled, brainwashed youths that we see. Uh, so he's the really young one with kind of a kind of a lean and hungry look to him. Huh. Well, I, I guess the, I would say that's the main one. I guess that's kind of the one I meant. Which, which okay. other one? The, the one who crawls up to the window and sticks yes. the... Okay. Yeah, that's him. Oh, okay. So, um, Fancher was born in 1938, and I, and I believe it's still still uh, very much around. and has actually been active in, uh, in, in, in fairly uh, recent years. Uh, this was his first screen role as an uncredited, quote-unquote, zombie, though I don't <laughs> think he's really a zombie. Uh, but that's what's that's listed on say. IMDb. There, this movie is just full of like sketchy guys who are carrying mm-hmm. globes around and doing what the aliens say. I guess because they've got they've got tinglers on them. It's kind of the, the youth uh, uh, danger element of this picture, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I don't I don't think he has any lines in this, but he's you know he has a certain screen presence. Uh, he he would uh, he would have been I think twenty years old at the time or around that. Uh, he went into act in a lot of stuff, mostly TV through the 60s and 70s. Uh, he was at one point married to Sue Lyon, who played Lolita in Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of that novel. Huh. But he's most notable for his work on the screenplay for Ridley Scott's 1982 classic Blade Runner. Oh, wow. Yeah. This was, of course, uh, a loose adaptation of Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. I did not know that. 
He also worked on the screenplay for Blade Runner 2049 and 2018, as well as some of the related, like, shorter film projects that were kind of attached and revolving around that picture, like like Moons. Hmm. He didn't do a ton else um, in terms of writing and directing. He adapted the screenplay for 1989's The Mighty Quinn, starring Denzel Washington. Oh, it, it's been a long yeah. time since I saw that, but I remember liking it. It's kind of a, a noir detective movie. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Uh, and he also directed and wrote the screenplay for 1999's The Minus Man. Um, this was adapted from the novel by Lou McCreary. Are you familiar with this picture, Joe? I know of it, but I've never seen it. I I watched it, I guess, when it came out, and I remember really liking it, and I read the book as well, which was was pretty good, as I recall. But uh, yeah, it's an indie serial killer flick with a really great cast. Owen Wilson in the lead is the the sort of uh, you know mild mannered, quaint uh, serial murderer who's mm-hmm. I, I've seen him compared to to both um, Chauncey, Chauncey Gardner and uh, and of course uh, Norman Bates. Oh, okay. <laughs> but that film also stars Janine Garofalo, Brian Cox, Mercedes Rule. I mean, Brian Cox, I'm there. Yeah, but also, just, just to be on the safe side, they throw in Dwight Yoakam, um, <laughs> John Carroll Lynch, uh, Larry Miller is in it. Wow. And I think uh, Cheryl Crow is actually in it as well. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's an interesting cast, and uh, yeah, Brian Cox is great, and everybody's great. In it. All the names you just mentioned get murdered? Uh, I don't think. You know, I don't remember how many people actually get murdered. A lot of it is, um, it's not, it's not really that kind of a serial killer movie. It's, oh, okay. um, it's a slower pace kind of indie thing. You, I feel like a lot of characters are in danger. Uh, and there's this, always this, this feeling that like he could kill any one of these people, but I don't remember like, for instance, if Larry Miller gets, uh, gets murdered. Mm. Or not. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's break into the plot on this one. Well, I like this movie because it, it's got a cold open. So before we even get the title sequence, uh, there's a cold open on a deserted street corner in the dark with ominous music and immediately voiceover narration just kicks right in. And it says, a few weeks ago, Riverdale, Illinois was just another quiet small town. Then on that Saturday, what Saturday? I don't know. Shortly <laughs> after midnight, a living nightmare began. And we see two people about to cross paths on the sidewalk, or they're going around a corner. One is, I think, an older man in, like, a heavy coat. And the other is, I think, Hampton Fancher. It's a young man with sort of elfin features Mm -hmm. carrying a transparent globe that is beaming light from inside. And he's got a cloth draped over it. And they bump into each other on the sidewalk. Elf Boy drops the globe. It shatters everywhere. And then, and then Elf Boy viciously throttles the older man. It's an intriguing opening. Yeah. Yeah. We see some kind of dark goo pouring out of the, the glass ball as it's lying fractured on the, on the concrete. Yeah. Oh, and, and a picture like this, we never know. Is it blood? Is it oil? It's right. all kind of the same. Hershey's chocolate, chocolate syrup. Yeah, of course. It's a hot fudge sundae on the sidewalk. And we hear a hissing sound that will recur throughout the movie. But then we go to the the title and credit sequence, which looked very stylistically familiar to me. Yeah, um, it, it, it looks really good. Uh, I was looking it up to, in the credits to see, well, who, who did this? Who did the opening uh, scroll? And it's this guy, Robert Balser, who lived 1927 through 2016, uh, who is known for uh, his work in the animation department on both 1968's uh, Yellow Submarine and 1981's Heavy Metal. 
just looking him up, I see that he apparently worked under Saul Bass, the director oh. of Phase Four. And I I don't see evidence of this directly, but I gotta say the the art style is very familiar to me from the credits of other Roger Corman drive-in movies of the fifties, like Attack of the Crab Monsters and Not of This Earth. So I wonder if he also did those, but I I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Either way, it's certainly eye-catching. Well, anyway, after the credits finish, rather hilariously, the narration resumes in the first person. I don't know if this caught you off guard the same way it did me. So like at first it's like God is speaking. It's just, you know, disembodied narrator describing events. But then it it's the same voice saying on Sunday, about an hour before nightfall, my fiance and I were returning from a trip to her family's home in the country. <laughs> yeah, the, the voiceovers in this uh, this film are, are- kind of out of control it, yeah. it brings me back to what we were talking about recently about blade runner you know some people are like oh i don't want any uh, narration and other people are, are, are like i'm fine with the narration that's what the first version i saw um in you know narration doesn't mean that something's broken in the film necessarily in uh, this film <laughs> i believe it is there because something is broken because audio didn't work in some right. scenes they didn't get sound in a scene so they just fill it in with narration because there are a number of scenes in this movie where the narration is not filling in gaps it's just telling you what's happening in a scene that you are currently watching <laughs> without live sound right and and i have to admit sometimes i'm glad it was there i'm glad there was a, a the voice yeah. of god was present to fill me in on what these characters are doing but the funniest thing also rachel pointed this out when we were watching it and i had to concur i i thought the same thing the narrator sounds exactly like the gene shepherd narration in a christmas story <laughs> yeah i i didn't catch this when i uh watched it initially but on, on your urging i went back and uh listened to part of it and yeah yeah i can i can totally get it this sounds like uh like grown up Ralphie. Yeah. But also I thought it was funny. Cause so the narration's going like, you know, Oh, uh, our wedding date was set. Everything was right with the world. Meanwhile, the car is just peeling around corners on this country road. <laughs> yeah. But the narration says we were on the way back to town to tell the good news to my father. And then for some reason they just suddenly stop and get out of the car. And I, I don't think I understood why I, maybe it implies they have engine trouble, but that was not clear to me. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure on that. Another thing about the first-person narration is that the narration is from a character who doesn't really make sense to be the narrator, because I would say he's not the main character of the movie. He's like a secondary lead, and he doesn't really have any special insights. So the character is the, the character Glenn Cameron, played by Alan J. Factor, whose role in this movie is that he's the son of the mayor of this town, and uh, the actor who plays him looks sort of like a young Richard Nixon. <laughs> yeah, otherwise, not much of a factor in this picture. Right? <laughs> like, I didn't even list him because I, you know, I was looking at his, uh, his IMDb uh, profile and, uh, and nothing was really jumping out at me. You, yeah, so he's the narrator, but you kind of forgot he was in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, so Glenn and his fiance Elaine, played by Jodie Fair, they go wandering off into the woods after their car stops and going by the lighting, it would seem that they wander for days, but I don't think that's what it's supposed to be. This movie just switches frantically between daytime and nighttime shots with, with no apparent rhyme or reason it's just, they just do it. Scenes that are supposed to be totally continuous, repeatedly switch between day and night. 
But anyway, so I think this is just supposed to be moments later that they bumble around in the woods and they come across a clearing full of dead animals. Yeah, yeah. This is a move. And, and I have to admit, when this stuff was, was happening on the screen, um, and, and I was watching it in, in really good quality. I rented it through Amazon Prime. Uh, mm-hmm. So I feel like I was watching it in as good a quality as possible, but I couldn't tell what some of the animals were. And the only one we really get a good look at is a dead dog. So yeah. at first I thought, this is a movie that is not only um, unafraid to kick things off with a dead dog, but it seems to have like a, f- a field full of dead dogs. Right. Uh, but then right next to this slaughterhouse, we meet the cone. They immediately, <laughs> they look up and they see in all its glory, gleaming in the sunlight with its apex, like a like a claw reaching out of the earth, the cone. <laughs> yeah, my son was in the room when I was watching this part and he's like, what's what's happening? What's this about? And um, so I was like, I don't know. I think that this cone just messed up a whole field of dogs. Um, so I don't know. But it was okay that he was watching this film because I noticed the rating on this film when I started watching it mm-hmm. on Amazon was uh, 7 plus. So as long as you're seven <laughs> years old, you're good to go. I don't know. I mean, it doesn't have any bad words or anything, but this film has an awful lot of like dead animals and people just randomly shooting at stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And uh it, it did not capture my my son's attention. He uh, he was like, yeah. oh, okay, and he left. But he agreed with me that the cone, uh, the fabulous cone, uh, does look like something you might see in a really interesting uh, playground. Like a lot of playgrounds these days have mm. the same very nice playground equipment made by kind of the same company, and it's good stuff. But you'll still occasionally find one that's a bit uh, you know avant garde or you know mm. was futuristic when it was first built. Uh, you know maybe ten or fifteen years ago, and this this is what this looks like. You're like, oh, that that's a cool playground. I kind of want to visit that. I look at playgrounds now and all the slides and everything are made out of this like soft plastic without sharp edges. It's kind yeah. of gently curved and uh, looks like it's not going to slice your legs up like the metal equipment I remember from my youth. This is this is the old school. This yeah. is metal playground equipment that will it will annihilate your thighs and kill every animal within uh, <laughs> several yards here. Well, I like it. So they discover the cone and then immediately cut to Washington, D.C., establishing mm-hmm. shot of the Capitol building. We know where we are. And the, the narrator goes, uh, 48 hours later in Washington, a hastily summoned UFO committee anxiously awaited to see a special screening of top secret army films. Delaying the proceeding was the late arrival of Senator Walter K. Powers. <laughs> and then Senator Walter K. Powers busts into the room wearing a hat and large overcoat He's immediately chopping necks. This guy is every room he goes into, he's immediately in charge. Yep. Oh, oh, but then he just sits down and they watch the film strip. So we get a movie within a movie. And I and I'm gonna do the narration from it because it basically sets up the whole premise. This movie front loads all of the exposition and then it just turns into people shooting at things later on. Mm-hmm. Uh so so the narration goes like this. It says A ravine six miles south of the town of Riverdale, Illinois, 48 hours ago, discovery was made of a great cone-shaped object. The cone stands 50 feet high, has a base diameter of 50 feet. The nature of the cone, undetermined. I I like how they were going to say unknown, but that would have rhymed with cone, so they changed it to (laughs) undetermined, you know? Nice. Like, you can't say the nature of the cone, unknown. But then they say origin, unknown. 
Efforts Made to Determine the Composition of the Cone by Dr. Paul Kettering, Principal Scientist for Project Damper, have proven futile. The surface of the cone has proven resistant to pressure, heat, acid. Coincidental with the discovery of the cone is the brutal slaying of several of the town's leading citizens. We don't see oh, this, oh, though, then, right? Wait, what? We, we don't see the, the brutal... Well, I guess we saw... We saw, we saw the some, guy getting shaken on the street corner that's right, when he that's right. dropped the globe. Was yeah. he a leading citizen, though? I suppose. Oh, okay. It doesn't tell us who he was. Uh, but, oh, yeah. But then uh, we also learned that some townspeople are saying that they've seen chariots of fire flying through the sky. I like uh, that. I did like that that detail. I, I did. And yet it shows just a couple people kind of like w- without sound just going like, well, blah, blah, and pointing <laughs> off camera. <laughs> and uh, then finally it says, all reports inconclusive. As of this report, the origin and nature of the cone remain unknown and meanwhile it like so it's showing you the film strip they're all watching but occasionally it cuts to these like very square washington guys watching the movie mm-hmm. <laughs> and they look exactly this they're all wearing these dark suits with the glasses on and i'm just imagining you know they're whispering do you think it's a cone looks like a cone to me uh, but anyway, right after the movie finishes, Walter K. Powers takes charge. He gets up in front of the room. He's like, okay, look, everybody, the president has ordered me to take the lead on this cone. And he says, quote, I want some action. I have the people's interests at heart, but I will not have my hands bound by lack of all the facts. So he announces he's going to fly to Riverdale and see this thing for himself. And then he just bolts out of the room. Yeah, <laughs> you'd think they'd maybe send in the the National Guard or something. I don't know, uh, or or maybe some sort of uh, you know an X Files type crew. But it's no, let's say the senator is going to arrive and and actually like look in on things, not just do a, a photo op. Why why is Walter K. Powers part of the fact finding mission about the cone? I don't know. Hmm. Must be an election year. Has to be an election year, right? Oh, and then I like also we see Walter K. Powers doing some sneaky power moves while he's, he's trying mm-hmm. to keep the cone under his jurisdiction. Like he's sending his underlings off to like, if, if they try to get at the cone, make sure that they uh, know there's a threat of investigation of their activities and that'll, that'll keep them out of the cone. And then he says, uh, I'm going to poke so many holes in that spaceship fairy tale. The little be off in 24 hours. So Walter K powers is not a cone believer. He's a cone skeptic. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he's got to fly to Riverdale. He flies out there by a little plane, and he meets uh, he meets Glenn, little, uh, little Nixon, and he, he asks, hey, wh- why, why was the mayor not sent to meet me? And Glenn Cameron explains, well, there have been some disturbing developments. The mayor, who happens to be my father, has disappeared, and uh, so here I am instead. And then we just cut – this is not explained at all. So they're at the airport, and then it just cuts to a shot of this super shady globe guy holding a globe <laughs> and making the funniest face. I wish I could explain. Uh, yeah, it's almost like Three Stooges-esque uh, as he's looking side to side. Uh, this would make for a wonderful uh, little uh, you know, uh, looping animation type deal. Yeah, he, he, looks, he looks like no, they're not going to get my globe. <laughs> it's like he stole the sun. Well, so anyway, the Glenn Cameron narration continues as he takes Walter K. Powers to meet the the head scientist at the Cone site, Dr. Kettering. Dr. Kettering, again, is uh, – that's Ed Nelson. That's our sort of leading man. Uh, we also meet the character of Alice Summers, played by Joanna Lee, who is helping Dr. Kettering with his research. And as soon as Walter K. Powers shows up, he is throwing his weight around. He's like, why has nobody been inside the cone yet? And Alice (laughs) explains very calmly that it could be dangerous. 
Uh, but he he wants answers. So Walter K. Powers goes up to meet Ed Nelson. There's all this scaffolding next to the cone that mm-hmm. they're uh, constantly climbing up and down and, and shooting scenes on. Uh, so Walter K. Powers, he just climbs up this 50-foot pile of scaffolding to the top himself. Uh, and then he, he finds Kettering up there at the top working with his assistant. And he says, you know why I'm here. I want action. <laughs> what what do you think he's imagining when he says action? Like, what is the action he's talking about? It, it's almost like he is. Just, this is just political theater. Like, it's just yeah. about demanding the action. Uh, actual action uh, is, a you know, given any kind of situation is a lot more complicated. Like, like, what, what do you mean? Are we going to try and make, you know, see if there's intelligent life inside? Should we be trying to communicate with it? Should we be setting up all sorts of sensitive equipment? I guess they're supposed to have some sensitive equipment set up here. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't really know exactly what he wants. He just wants to bust in like G-Men, I guess. Yeah, yeah, action. Uh, and well, so – Ed Nelson does seem to understand what he's talking about because he just launches into a bunch of fake scientific techno babble. You know, the ship is indestructible. You can't mark it with diamond bit drills or metal eating acids. Nothing can affect it. Uh, so they try another test that they, uh, I guess, haven't tried yet. They're like, well, let's just shoot a gun into this hole and see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so they shoot a gun into the hole and it ricochets around, which they say proves that the tunnel is. E- it sounds like they're saying psychic, but that doesn't make any sense. I think they're saying cyclic, like it's a circle and it comes back to the beginning. Yeah, um, it's yeah, it's a crazy scene. <laughs> it just seems to ricochet forever in there. And I love why it's almost immediately that he's like, you got to get in there. And then they're like, make sure you bring a gun with you so that, yeah, clearly if you have to fire it or it goes off by accident, it will just ricochet endlessly in there. Right. Uh, and, uh, and, and no doubt hit you at least once. Right. Oh, but before they send Kettering into the hole, I love uh, Walter K. Powers gives a speech where he says, I can do without the double talk. I don't like to push you, Kettering, but you science boys tend to get all wrapped up in your test tubes and the obvious things escape your attention. I've got to have something to report. I want action, not theories. I want to know what's inside that ship. So he commands Kettering to go inside the ship and Kettering gets a gun and crawls on into the hole. Yep. But then this is utterly uneventful because later he just crawls out of the hole and he's like, yep, nothing to report. Yeah, there's no reveal of what the inside <laughs> of this thing is like. He's just like comes out and is like, yep, just goes around in circles. Yeah, yeah. Up and down, nothing really going on in there. Yeah. Oh, but then it cuts to uh, – they get a call that the mayor showed up again. Remember the mayor had disappeared? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And, and Walter K. Powers did not like that news at all. He was like, the mayor shouldn't – it sounds like everybody here is bungling this. Uh, <laughs> it's not time to take a leave of absence. But so the mayor shows back up. He's in his office uh, having some kind of horrible anguish, like pointing a gun at himself and then removing it and 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 like sweating profusely. Uh, and everybody goes to the mayor's office for some reason. Oh, and and there's a brief power squabble between the mayor and Walter K. Powers. Uh, the mayor is like, this is my jurisdiction. And Walter K. Powers is like, I'll bring in the National Guard. I'll take over this town. <laughs> uh, but while, while they're arguing, Dr. Kettering observes. He looks at the mayor and he's like, you don't look well. And, uh, and the mayor doesn't like, uh, being scrutinized like that. And so he's like, Kettering, I order you out of town. You can't be in this town anymore. And then the mayor freaks out. He pulls the gun out of his desk and starts pointing it at everybody. And Kettering, in a very calm manner, he's like as calm as the T-1000. 
He -hmm. says, what is that on the back of your neck, mayor? And the mayor says, there's nothing on my neck. And he says, I say there is. Mind if I take a look at it? Well, they almost get him to calm down, but then I don't remember what triggers it, but suddenly everybody just starts running around and shooting. Yes. (laughs) This is probably as good a time as any just to to mention that – uh, that I believe the allegation was that this film uh, borrowed the plot from uh, the puppet masters. Oh yeah. Yeah. The Heinlein novel. And mm-hmm. apparently Heinlein was going to sue them and got a settlement. He got some cash out of them, but did not want his name attached to the film. Right. But, but certainly if you're, if you're looking up uh, things about adaptations of the puppet masters, or you're just looking up uh, Heinlein on uh, IMDb, you'll see this film listed as an adaptation of that book even. Uh, and, and I have to admit, I haven't read the puppet masters and I have not seen the, uh, the Donald Sutherland adaptation. I guess the Donald Sutherland was really into uh, like a- alien invasion parasite films. Oh uh, yeah. That, yeah. You know, I didn't think well, about that. I mean, he was in two of them, so I don't know. Uh, at any rate, uh, I haven't seen it or read it, so I, I can't really comment on how closely this mirrors it. But I know that both involve like neck slugs that take over your brain or something. Well, anyway, in this scene, everybody shoots the mayor, and then um, they inspect the mayor's dead body. And there is indeed something horrifying on the back of his neck, though we don't get to see it. The, the characters all go like, oh, and an autopsy confirms it. And I just want to point out, Rob, I took a screen grab of this. Ed Nelson is in the autopsy room with the coroner doing the autopsy and looking at the, the neck slug, the, the tingler thing. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's got like muscle scrubs. He's wearing scrubs <laughs> that are sleeveless with his biceps hanging out. Uh, I don't know. He's just really going to get in there. I don't know. Is that a thing? Muscle scrubs? <laughs> uh, well, I haven't seen it before. Well, I like it. So everybody's hanging out. And then the coroner comes out to assure everybody. He's like, look, none of you should feel bad at all all about shooting the mayor because he had an alien slug on his neck and that would have killed him anyway. (laughs) So we get some scenes where they explore these, these tinglers. They say, okay, well they've got two little antenna fangs and these little antenna fangs pierce into the spine at the base of the neck and they inject acid that will kill you if they're detached. So you can't just take them off of somebody though. They will, they will extract a, a hefty price, a fatal price from the victim. If they're removed, kind of like the face hugger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Try and yeah, cut, cut the face hugger off. The alien's gonna, the alien blood is gonna burn you. Uh, you know, try and pull it off. It's gonna strangle them with the, the tail. Uh, but they they give the expository setup. They're like, once this thing attaches itself to the victim's back, the victim is not human anymore. They become they 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 are under the command of this of this tingler. And so the, the movie is front loaded with a lot of expository setup. You know, there are a lot more horror and action action scenes to follow. And and the next thing, indeed, is one of these. So uh, we get like a, a scene of a uh, of a I think it's the sheriff. There's some kind of cop out driving on the road at night, and then there's a guy lying in the middle of the road as the police car approaches. So the officer gets out to investigate, but then the guy it's a it's a surprise attack. He ambushes him and he starts punching him. And then they, they do some kind of globe magic on the cop. Like this other guy comes in with one of the glowing orbs and uh, the, they get the cop cone zombified. And you know what? There's not much about this movie that's really like effective on the level that it's trying to be. I'd say the closest thing is this scene. You're talking about this, the scene at, at night with the, with the cop. Yeah, yeah, like with the they show the siren going around mm-hmm. and the, as the spooky guys are approaching with the globe. It's a little bit creepy, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, the scene where they're they're milling about there after they they got him and you, know, you got uh, Hampton there. 
you know, looking uh, looking all uh, again kind of lupine. You have Globe Guy uh, milling about. Yeah, uh, yeah, they're, they're building up their forces. There's also a scene somewhere around here where Alice and Kettering start falling in love while they're dissecting the slug in the lab. Mm-hmm. And yep. Kettering says, uh, "You cut a snake in half, and its two pieces will go off in different directions." And I was thinking, is that true? Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was iffy about that as well. It's like I don't know if that's really how snakes work. Oh my god! But this scene had one of the funniest things in the entire movie. It, we were shrieking when the, the, one of the tinglers crawls up on the table and it attacks Kettering's arm, mm-hmm. and he starts screaming. He's like, "Ah, hit it!" And then Alice just starts batting at it with a clipboard. Yeah, yeah. And I think he has to he has to what burn it off with a Bunsen burner. Yes. Yeah. Really funny. Uh, but eventually we get a big fat theorizing scene. They 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 take their their knowledge and apply it to uh, to what's going on with these parasites. They say that the parasites must have initially tried to infect the animals. Remember that the, all the dead mm-hmm. animals around the the cone, but it didn't work. They say they tried animals out of ignorance. They didn't know which animal, including man, was best suited for this environment. So they experimented, trial and error. And then Alice says, "You mean they can think?" And Glenn Cameron, the the little Nixony looking guy, says, uh, "You mean these things can take over a man's mind and he becomes a robot?" <laughs> yeah, I love a good robot uh, line in a picture. Um, yeah, and in this, I guess we're getting into the you know the the, the obvious um, you know um, communism comparison uh, right. to, to be taken here that the parasites are communism, and of course, as we all know, communism was first tried on animals. <laughs> and uh, it did not work, you know, uh, and, and, and many of the animals died. Uh, it didn't work on goats. It didn't work on, uh, on dogs. Uh, but then, but then it, uh, it tried people. And, you know, here we are. Well, this is we get these parallels in all these movies from the fifties, you know, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, mm-hmm. and uh, it conquered the world. It's the same plot in in almost all these. There's some kind of mind control, parasitic alien, or something that comes in and says, "You will have peace. There will be no more conflict if you just let us take over your minds." And and yeah, I think it's pretty clear what the what the allegories are supposed to be there. Though in this picture, uh, you know, I don't know if they're necessarily thinking too much about that. <laughs> they're, they're just sort of painting with some of the, the same uh, shades that were popular in uh, genre yeah. fiction at the time. Yeah, exactly. Oh, but the, the other thing they figure out, they're like, hey, this spaceship, uh, the, the cone, it must actually just be one section of a larger hole. And what we need to do is because they think, well, this section of the cone, maybe it's just uh, like a fuel storage portion, and we need to find the control portion of the ship. And in order to do that, we better split up into groups and go look for it individually. Uh, so they do that, and we get some funny scenes. Like one is Walter K. Powers riding in a car with his assistant and one of the other scientists. And, and the scientist says to uh, his his assistant, he's like, you don't talk much, do you? And Walter K. Powers says, that's why he's my assistant. Now you take parrots, great talkers, lousy flyers. <laughs> and I was like, what does that mean? Is his assistant a good flyer? Yeah, or is is he saying that he's essentially a parrot, that he's the talker, but he can't fly? Uh, it's strange. Are parrots lousy flyers? I don't even know if I believe that. I, I don't, I don't. No, I don't think that's that's actually true either. That's that's pulled from the same uh, uh, animal fact book as the snake thing. 
Uh, but it, it, basically, everybody investigates. They find nothing. There's a scene where Glenn and Elaine they go they go and look around in the shack, and then they hear that hissing sound we've heard a few times. And then they mm-hmm. see uh, I think it's Hampton Fancher at the window with the globe. But fortunately, Glenn is armed, and he shoots at all movement until everything is set <laughs> right. Uh, and then everybody comes back and they're like, nope, we didn't find anything. And then there's a, I, I enjoyed the long telegraph scene where Walter K. Yeah. Powers is trying to send a telegraph to the governor that's like, uh, I don't remember exactly. He's like, everything is ruined. Stop. Aliens invading parasites. Stop. You know, send army immediately. But then we <laughs> we cut to the guy at the telegraph office, and what he actually sends is everything peaceful here, spaceship pure bunk. So, uh-oh, <laughs> they, they've gotten to our telegraph operators. Yeah. Oh, and also later that night, the parasite zombies, they attack Alice. Whoops, whoops. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They, they go and they put one of the tinglers in her room, and it gets on her neck, and now she's zombified. What I loved about this scene, though, is that this is basically the same scene that we get in Attack of the Clones, when the um, uh, the assassin tries to take out uh, Princess uh, Amidala, and uh, and then uh, Anakin, uh, you know, leaps in with a lightsaber to stop her, it's the same thing. Uh, the uh, the the shape shifting assassin puts some sort of a a strange uh, killer, you know, toxic slug into the room with her. Maybe a couple uh-huh. of them, if I remember correctly. And uh, and yeah, it's 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 very similar. I would not be surprised if Lucas might have been thinking back on this sequence when uh, when putting that film together. Oh, I do think Brain Eaters is one of his favorite films. He said so. <laughs> no, I, I made that up. Well, but I mean, he Lucas was always you know throwing in various uh, you know homages to older pictures. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. You know. So, so uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised. But uh, yeah, I, I was expecting Anakin to jump in with a lightsaber and start cutting slugs in half. Well, I would love to find out that were true. A good inspiration from from nineteen fifties B sci fi. Yeah. Oh, but I, I totally forgot until we just got to this. They, they go back to the cone, and then there's a dying man lying outside the cone yeah. in the dirt, and they recognize him. And they're like, hey, he's that famous scientist who mysteriously disappeared. <laughs> that was a moment where I was where I was wondering, was I just not paying attention to nope, the setup for this? Ne- okay. Never appeared in the movie before, never been referenced. So they're just like, okay. hey, <laughs> we all know who you are. It's like you go up to the cone and it's like, hey, that's Carl Sagan lying in the dirt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah anyway, the, the, so they say, well, uh, he, he disappeared on an expedition five years ago and it looks like he had one of these parasites on him and was inside the cone somehow. But now the parasite is off of him. So he's dying because remember, if you take the parasite off, you, you die. And uh, and they take him back to the hospital and we get this like scene where they're they're interrogating this this frail dying man. <laughs> And they say, where is Dr. Cole who vanished with you? And, oh, oh, the other questions, they say, are, are the parasites from the cone? What is the secret of the cone? <laughs> and the man's, the man, he has like two more words before he dies. One of them, he, he says, carboniferous. It sounds like carnivorous, but no, he says carboniferous, referring hmm. to the geologic uh, epoch. And they're like, oh, okay. So he says carboniferous. That means that these parasites are from the ancient past. They're from Earth, and they were under the Earth all this time. Uh, Walter K. Powers deduces, then it's not a spaceship. It's from below. Oh, so this is like a, like a drill device uh, this is, that has drilled its way up through the crust. Right. It was created by aliens from the carboniferous era of, of Earth. 
to me a few hundred million years ago or whatever. Uh, oh, and then the, the scientist also, uh, he says, as he dies, he goes death. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. Yes. Famous last words. Uh, and then there's like, I love the, the scenes where they just discover that all of their infrastructure has been taken over by the, by the globe zombies because Walter K powers is trying to call somebody to get the, I don't know. He's trying to call the governor or something. And the phone operator just keeps saying, I'm sorry, sir. That line is busy no matter who he tries to call. Uh, so they've got our telephone operators too. And then following up from this, Kettering and Glenn Cameron go to the telegraph office to beat up the guy who works there. Oh, and this is where we get a big, uh, like cowboy style martial arts fight, right? I think there's yeah. a, which I always love in a picture from, there, there's like a, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a wide period of time. I want to say like upwards of like 20 years where all these fights have kind of the same choreography. If there's a table, somebody's going over it yep. and then there'll be a few karate chops in there. <laughs> and yeah. there's one karate chop thrown by, um, uh, uh, by our hero here, by Dr. Kettering, right to somebody's back, right? Yeah, yeah, it always happens. So the, the the bad person in the fight goes head down and then tries to kind of tackle. It goes into the midsection of the good character, and then the good character has to, like, chop at their back until they, yeah. like, knock them down. Yeah, I love it. Why is it always like that? I don't know. It's the... It's, there's just uh, something about the the fight. I really should research it at some point. Like, what is it about fight choreography from films from this time period? Is it just like sort of the same group of uh, choreographers that were doing everything? Is it how much of it is like a holdover from like like vaudeville or silent era? I, I don't know. Um, I'm know, wondering. I wonder if delivering blows to the back is easier to make look realistic while risking less injury than other types of fighting moves. That is probably a big part of it. Yeah. Cause I know that, um, yeah, you know, you can, you can have like more of a, it's a flat blow to the back and it's going to be less uh, intensive. You know, you can do some, uh, some mock strangling, uh, <laughs> And, uh, and so forth, some some basic like headlock stuff, and it'll look mm-hmm. pretty good. Speaking of headlocks, did you did you pick up on the thing throughout the movie where the people who are infected by the parasites often have a lump under the collar on the back of their shirt that is like throbbing or pulsing? Um, I did, yeah. The um, which again, I guess this is the presence of the slug, right? Right, it is. Yeah, and so like it's a giveaway in some scenes. So. Uh, you know, the phones don't work. The telegraph won't work because zombies have, have taken over or whatever they are. The, you know, the parasite controlled humans have taken over all those things. And then Walter K. Powers tries to go to the radio station to like send out a broadcast about the about the cone. Mm-hmm. But apparently they're not transmitting because the guy operating the radio station, you see under his shirt, he's got this want want thing going oh, on yeah. back there. It reminds me of the 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 later Battlestar Galactica remake where the spines of the Cylons had like glows. I don't know if anyone any like actual characters ever notice it, but the viewer is to notice it. Oh, I, I didn't even remember that. But also, this makes me realize the karate chop in the earlier scene that was a karate chop right to the slug. That was oh. spot on martial arts. Yeah, that was a, a pressure point strike right to the tingler. Yeah. It's really a flaw in the plan. Like the tingler, at least, is is an endoparasite. This one's an exoparasite, yes. even though it's altering behavior. It leaves it uh, susceptible to uh, karate chops like this. 
Right. So we know in the end that ultimately Kettering is going to have to venture into the cone again to learn the secret of the cone. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Kettering does go – oh, before he goes into the cone, there are some guards that have been stationed there. I think they're police officers to like protect the cone. But of course, they're infected too. So they start shooting at Kettering and then everybody starts shooting at everybody because everybody is armed. But Kettering gets inside the cone and meets – Leonard Nimoy. Yeah, and this is a this whole scene here is is nice and weird. Like uh, at this yeah. point, you're like, okay, this was worth the 50 minute journey to get here. Sure, Leonard Nimoy, surrounded by fog, dressed like Gandalf with long beard, and uh, was it supposed to be long hair or a hood? I think it's a hood. Yeah, we see mm-hmm. a close up, and he's got a hood on. And I'm wondering why is he dressed like that? Because he's supposed to be Professor Cole, the other scientist who vanished with the guy we met earlier. Uh, but, but was professor Cole carrying like wearing robes with a hood when he went into the ship? Uh, no, he, he must be lower ranking in the, the new order that has uh, risen in the depths here. But where did the robes with the hood come from? Did the, did the aliens make it? Did the, did the slugs make the robe? I guess so. Um, you know, the robes were supplied and the other professor, uh, did not want to wear a robe, and they were like, well, if you're not going to wear a robe, you're going to have to leave, and he did, and then he died. That's my read on it. Well, anyway, so Kettering gets down there, and he he confronts Professor Cole, Leonard Nimoy, and Nimoy says, uh, we are in complete harmony. We We are inseparable. There is no conflict. We will not engage in combat, no violence of any kind. Why should we, when we can scatter quietly like seeds in the wind? I was like, oh, the writing got slightly better for a moment. Yeah. Um, but then um, but then he starts talking about it in a, in a slightly more awkward way. He's saying, like, let's, you know, let's replace all this messy, flawed humanity with the exactitude of mathematics. <laughs> and I was like, is that what these slugs are about? They're into mathematics? <laughs> well, they, they built a, 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 a giant <laughs> drill spaceship cone thing. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Assume math was, I'm assuming math was involved. Uh, so Nimoy says, you know, we're, we're going to force upon man a life free from strife and turmoil. Uh, and uh, and again, this is very similar theme we've seen in other movies. It conquered the world and so forth. And uh, so they talk for a bit. And then eventually the scientists just start shooting everything. Mm-hmm. And so how do they <laughs> – so they start shooting at Leonard Nimoy and shooting at the, the tinglers. And they get out of the cone – and how, so they're back outside, and like, how do they defeat the cone in the end? I'll give it's a 1950s movie. It's indestructible alien enemy. I'll give you one guess. How do they beat it? Sodium. <laughs> no, that's, <laughs> that's be, another movie though. Uh, electricity. They yes. beat it with electricity. It's and like, luckily, oh, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> but yeah, this is the same thing they did in the the thing from another world, right? Electropads that's, and that one. Yeah. That's right. Yep, that is what they do. Yeah, they, the aliens never see that coming. They're like, electricity? Who would have thought? But uh, luckily— They don't know scene, about electricity. <laughs> they don't, yeah. Or they've forgotten about it. They move past it to their detriment. But um, luckily, the narrator here is here, is back to walk us through every step of this plan because it involves a, a harpoon gun. That, yeah. uh, they say that, well, this is just standard issue for folks doing like uh, uh, electrical line work um, if they need to you know, run something over difficult terrain. I gotta say the logistics part of the final the final ten minutes of the movie really slowed down. I think that was not a highlight of the film. Like <laughs> you can just speed through this now. We we get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, normally uh, you know it's, it. I guess it's stylistically kind of interesting because a lot of times 
Like, how are you going to do the final comeuppance of the alien? You, uh-huh. You're going to have like a plan and it's going to be planned out and explained, like in the thing from another world. Or many pictures, it's going to be kind of a, a gut instinct on the part of the hero, like mm-hmm. where he suddenly remembers something and the weakness comes to him and he makes it happen. This was, yeah, this is a little bit more drawn out. It's basically in the neighborhood of the thing from another world, except, um, I don't know, there's no, there's no real tension. You know it's going to work. And the thing from another world... You're not so certain. Oh, but as sort of like the thing from another world, this movie, the final confrontation with the monster involves a, uh, a sort of like a, 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 a flawed temptation toward human connection with the beast because uh, uh, Alice comes out. Remember Alice yes. like, comes out of the cone. She's been parasite uh, zombified. And she says to Kettering, she's like, hey, you know, don't don't you remember me? Why don't come party with me and Leonard Nimoy and we'll live for 200 million years. And he's like, no, no, we can't. And so she gets really mad at him and she says, I can't believe I ever loved you. And she shoots him. And then Kettering is yelling out to his friends. He's like, fire that harpoon gun. <laughs> so they do. And we watch, uh, we watch the, I guess they're just a bunch of tinglers, little slug things with the antennae, like rolling around, getting electrified. And uh, we see all the human characters shielding their eyes, I guess, because it's, it's bright and that's it. They, they defeat the cone. Yep. And one of the last lines of dialogue is, is Walter K. Powers saying something about how something, or you don't know Walter K. Powers. (laughs) (laughs) Got to get his name in one more time. One more time, just in case you forgot it. That's WalterKPowers.com. And we take donations in 10, 20, 50, or whatever (laughs) you want to give, whatever you can spare. It's WalterKPowers.com. I want action. And then and then you're done. Like you're you're in and out on this picture in about an hour. Like we yeah. I think we've we've talked more in this episode than the movie actually lasts. This, this episode is like 28 minutes longer than the movie. <laughs> so, yeah, this is a film that uh you know, moved right along, uh had a, a pretty fun sci-fi plot, great poster. Um I feel like if this movie had had a more memorable looking creature or effect in it, mm. uh, it would have been, uh, it would be better remembered, you know? Yes. Like, like yeah. I think of uh, so, some of these other pictures that we've discussed or talked about, there'll be some sort of practical effect in there that, that works on some level or, or is even goofy enough to where it throws, you know, it goes over the top enough that it, it becomes memorable. Uh, so I'm not going to say it's a failing of the picture because the, the you know the slugs and the cone are all great in their own way, but it's it's lacking that that one like super weird visual thing that pushes it over the edge. I agree. If it had a puppet like the artichoke in It Conquered the World or like yes. the crab in Attack of the Crab Monsters, this would be an all time great drive in movie. I mean, this is not a good movie by any means, but it's highly amusing. It's only 60 minutes long. It moves right along. There are a few boring stretches, but they're over pretty quick. It's yeah. uh, this is a good one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, an hour picture. You're you're not going to be bored for long. Uh, it has yeah some fun cameos and uh, yeah, it's just a just an enjoyable enjoyable little picture. Um, yeah, worth it for the the Nimoy reveal at the end for sure. The warning you you can barely tell it's him. Like he's he's hiding behind a lot of fog and a big big old beard. Yeah, yeah, it's best know, to know going into it. Yeah, Nimoy will appear. You just got to give him time. But he still never got his $45. Still didn't get paid, yep. Way to go, Ed. <laughs> All right. Well, if you want to watch this movie as well, um, you can find it in various places. I found that I, I couldn't find it 
some places and I found it other places. So I found it on Amazon Prime. Uh, mm-hmm. I was able to, you can rent or buy it there, at least as of this recording in the United States. Um, you can probably find it in some other places as well. Um, I want to say like Pluto or Tubi looked like they had it. Uh, so, you know, shop around. It's out there. It's, a, it's, it's not completely forgotten. You can get it as a complimentary digital download with any donation at WalterKPowers.com. Walter K. Powers for America. <laughs> it is also on DVD. You can get it on DVD. And uh, and people are selling the poster. You can get that vintage poster. I, I would say the, the poster is probably better well-known than the movie. Um, I think that's 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 fair fair to say because especially in this age of you know like Tumblr and so forth and you know mm-hmm. and blogs like Monster Brains, uh, you know you get the instant satisfaction of looking at this stellar poster, uh, and not everybody's going to be inclined to actually check out the motion picture behind it. All right, well we're going to go ahead and close it out here. If you want to check out other episodes of Weird House Cinema, it comes out every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Uh, we're normally a science podcast with episodes, core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, but on Fridays we set most of that aside and talk about a, a weird picture like this one. Uh, on Wednesdays we do a short form artifact episode, and on Mondays it's listener mail. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind.com stuff to blow your mind is a production of iHeartRadio. for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows 